This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. This is the Mailbag Edition with Ken Rosenthal. I am Tim McMaster. This is the first mailbag since the start of the lockout. It's also going to be our last mailbag of 2021. Ken, how are you doing? Doing well, Tim. How are you? I am good, and I'm sure things have changed a little bit for you during a lockout, right? Like, you're always chasing you know, free agent signings, trades, that sort of stuff. Now it's, now it's labor negotiations. Probably not as much fun. No, but it's interesting nonetheless. And actually, I'd be chasing labor negotiations if there were labor negotiations going on. Good point. It doesn't seem to be the case right now. I'll start with a funny story. The other morning, Paul Fichtenbaum, my editor, the main guy at The Athletic, texted me about 7.40 a.m. Now, usually I'm up and about by then. We text all the time at that hour going over stories or whatever. But I slept in, and I did not wake up till 9.30 and I responded to Paul. I said, hey, sorry, but I'm on lockout schedule. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a little bit different now, to say the least. But I want to start off by talking about the lockout and a few stories that appeared in our site, on our site this week. And actually, I'm going to begin with something else, and that's to talk about a movie I saw with my wife on HBO a couple nights ago called Oslo. It's about the Oslo Accords in 1993, the negotiations between the Palestinians and the Israelis that brought about at least a temporary peace. And the negotiations were fascinating. This was done through back channels. Nobody knew about it. At first, it was junior officials, and they brought in Arafat and Shimon Perez later. And as I'm watching this, Tim, I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, the history here is unreal between these two parties. The tension is incredible. The enmity is incredible. And what they are talking about is something so profound. And yet they got to an agreement. And we're sitting here (laughs) with players and owners in a sport, a professional sport of baseball, unable to reach agreement on things that, in my view, are not that difficult. They should not be this far apart. And what I'm circling back to in talking about all this are three stories that we had on our site, as I mentioned, this week. The first was by me, and that was just kind of a suggestion for what the CBA should look like, the main points. Another story by Eno Saris, kind of a financial analysis, the different levers in place, what salary arbitration going to two years might be worth financially, what the addition of a universal DH might be worth financially. The expanded playoffs, and he suggested as well jersey patches, how that could maybe bridge the gap. And then Jason Stark with a fascinating look at what a reverse draft order might mean for baseball. And all of these concepts that we discussed, the three of us, different levels of close to reality or not so close to reality perhaps, but again, We are talking about things here that should not be so difficult to achieve. We're not changing the landscape of this sport here. The owners have not proposed a salary cap. 
And I know a lot of fans think that's the answer. I would disagree with that. I would suggest that the sports that have a salary cap, the NBA, NFL in particular, there is just as much disparity in those sports competitively as there is in ours. In fact, Jason has written about this multiple times. There's more disparity in some ways. We got the New England Patriots, we got the Golden State Warriors, all these dominant teams in those sports as well. We got teams like the Detroit Lions that stink. So don't tell me that's the answer. And besides that, even if it could be an answer, and there is a world I can envision where a salary cap might work in this sport, even if you look at it that way, it's just not reality right now. The players are never going to accept it. They have fought hard against it, and the owners, unlike in 94, know better than to even propose it. So here we are. We have a framework. We know basically what the parameters are. This should not be so difficult. And that's what I wanted to start off by saying today. You would hear or we've heard from the players and owners about how extreme and radical each other's proposals are and how far apart they are. And we know they're not very good at negotiating with each other. There's a history of that with the current leadership groups. They have not done a great job with each other except for COVID protocols. So we also know that there's a calendar working here and that there's no urgency right now. And we all understand that. But at some point, this needs to stop. And at some point, there needs to be an agreement in plenty of time for a full spring training and a full season. And that's all I will say to start off with. Okay, I definitely didn't think we were going to be talking about the Oslo Accords ever on the Athletic Baseball Show. So you I didn't brought, either, Tim. You've taken us to a new <laughs> level, Ken, and I appreciate it. All right, let's move on to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week, or actually, if you want to get involved for our next mailbag, which will be in early 2022, you can call us 646-543-7072. You can also email the show, Show at gmail.com. There are a lot of questions, obviously, revolving around the lockout, some other stuff as well. But let's start with this one, Ken. It's from Max Fargetstein. He says, while it's unfortunate to see the MLB lockout, one of the positive unintended consequences of that December 2nd deadline or December 1st deadline, was the flurry of free agent and player activity in November. That activity and the headlines that accompanied it had been sorely missed from recent MLB off-seasons. Contrast MLB with the NBA, which goes from their playoffs immediately into a crazy period of free agency and trades. That activity, in turn, keeps the NBA front and center in the headlines, on Twitter, on talk shows, and generally on the casual sports fan's mind during this offseason. How can baseball ensure that going forward it encourages more early offseason activity like we had this year so as to maintain the momentum of attention from the World Series? Max, very good question. And a lot of fans and even people within the sport were asking this question as that frenzy continued in the week before the lockout was announced. And we all knew the lockout was coming. That's why that frenzy occurred. And yet... The idea of deadline or deadlines is not as easy to accomplish as perhaps we would all think. And Brick Garoli wrote recently about this in The Athletic, and she had a very detailed story about the positives, the negatives, quoting executives from all over the sport. And one thing she mentioned to start off with was that in October 2019, the Players Association shot down a proposal by Major League Baseball for free agent signing Multi-year deals, a proposal for a deadline for those free agents, the ones signing multi-years, would have been at the end of the winter meetings. 
But the agents and the Players Association resisted that because they fear and they are wary of any restrictions on the free market. If you want to kind of understand where the union comes from a lot of times, that is the driving force. They are very concerned always with the free market working and functioning as it should. Now, there are other ways you can do this. You could have multiple deadlines. Scott Boris in 2019, this is all from Britt's story. He suggested that bottom 15 payrolls get more draft picks if they sign free agents within a certain time frame. But even some people on the other side, some of the GMs and the club executives, they too prefer the maximum time and flexibility. So I don't see this happening anytime soon. Until 1985, there was a trade deadline at the end of the winter meetings. And actually, that might be a good idea to revive. It doesn't affect the market, but it would create a frenzy at the meetings for sure, once we get the meetings back, of course. And then the dock would be cleared, or the deck would be cleared, I should say, for free agency. That's an idea maybe worth considering. And one other thing that I will mention here, and this is something that people within the sport talk about, it's not a concern for fans, obviously, is the idea of, at some point, a dark period to give everyone a chance to catch their breaths. This sport goes pretty much 24-7, 365. When times are normal... When there's no lockout, you'll see deals Christmas week. You'll see deals Thanksgiving. You'll see them New Year's. It, it doesn't stop. And it wears people out. Wears the club executives out. Wears the agents out. Wears the media out. And it's not really healthy. So at some point, perhaps they can institute something that would at least shut, the down, shut down the sport, I should say, for a period of time. It kind of used to be that way. When I first started, Christmas week was kind of a sacred period. You didn't mess around then. But that's kind of a different problem, and it's really one that I'm sure fans don't care about. But what fans do care about is the excitement that we saw before the lockout and probably we'll see after the lockout once there's that set, confined period in which signings and trades will take place. And that is something that I think the sport needs to look at going forward. Sometimes it takes like seeing how it goes to... to lead to change and maybe experiencing this year will help nudge people in the right direction. Speaking of all that crazy spending, Ken, the Rangers did most of it. <laughs> and Dan Zerby has a question related to that. He says, Hey Ken, brief two part question. Has there ever been a first time general manager to inherit a better situation than Chris Young? And what exactly are the roles of GMs versus presidents of baseball operations? How much do they differ from club to club where you have John Daniels and Chris Young on the Rangers? Yeah, Dan, good questions. Now, the first one, I would dispute your premise a little bit that Chris Young inherited this great situation. When he took over after the 2020 season, the Rangers were coming off a 22-38 and 38 record in the shortened season. That was the worst in the American League. Their farm system wasn't all that good. It still isn't all that good. And at that time, it wasn't clear that ownership was going to authorize the kind of spending spree that we just saw with the Rangers signing Semyon and John Gray and Corey Seager and Cole Calhoun at $562 million outlay. So it now looks like he inherited a good situation, but even then, they've got a ways to go. And if you had to rank the best situations for a GM to walk into right now that are not big market, high revenue, Los Angeles, Dodger, New York Yankee type things, 
you would probably look at teams like Seattle and Detroit, teams on the cusp that have a rebuilding program that is further along and that have the ability now, and we are seeing it, to spend. So I don't see him as inheriting a great situation. Now, it's turning out to be pretty good, better, but they've got, as I said, a ways to go. Now, the other question you ask about the difference between a president of baseball operations and a general manager in baseball, as in other areas of American business, we have title inflation. And sometimes titles are given to executives to lure them away from other teams. All these things take place. We know that. The best way to look at a president of baseball operations and a GM is that they are the one-two. So they could be given those titles, president of baseball ops GM. They could be GM and assistant GM. It's really all the same equation. Now, when Chris Young was hired, John Daniels had been doing the job alone for a while. He's the president of baseball operations, and it's a two-person thing now. And we see that with more and more teams, right? It's not just the president of baseball operations in most cases. There's also a GM. The Cubs just did this. Jed Hoyer, president of baseball ops, hired Carter Hawkins to be their GM from the Cleveland Indians. And the teams that don't necessarily have that kind of setup maybe have multiple assistant GMs. I'm thinking of the Red Sox as one such example. It's Bloom, and then there are three or four assistant GMs below him. So that is why the situation is what it is. Why you're seeing this division of labor, you're seeing executives added. There's simply too much to do. And in general, I would imagine John Daniels has the final say, but these situations are typically collaborative. And I am sure well, reasonably confident that John Daniels and Chris Young work together on these things and kind of come to a meeting of the minds with their other executives in the front office as well. I was thinking back to the last, just even somewhat recently, guys that took over great positions. And Andrew Friedman certainly stands out to what was going on in L.A. when he went there with the new ownership group and the minor league system was already kind of on its way and they had the money to spend. He, he inherited a pretty good spot. He did. <laughs> All right, let's go to our first voicemail of the day. Hey, guys, this is Noah calling in from Pittsburgh again. I've called a bunch of times. Really enjoy hearing Tim and Ken. Thinking about the labor strike, the labor stoppage, the lockout, whatever you want to term this. Ken, Tim, what do you remember about the labor stoppage in 94, the last one we had? I'll date myself. I was born a year after the last labor stoppage the summer of 95, so I have no recollection of a labor stoppage. And being a baseball fan since three years old, just curious what you guys remember about the last one. Hey, fellas, take care. Final call again. Enjoy your holidays with your families and a happy new year. Well, Philip, thanks very much. Tim, I'll let you go first. What do you remember? I was in high school, um, and I remember the difference being that it ruined the season. That was the thing. It's like you had mm-hmm. baseball, we were enjoying a season, and then it all went away and it didn't come back. And it was it was crushing in that sense. And that was that is so much different than what we're in right now, where it seems like even though they're not talking right now and the sides are so far apart, both sides continue to say, we're going to get this worked out in time for the season. And that That's what I remember. Is it just... And the other thing is that it, people point to is what it meant for the Montreal Expos, right, Ken? That like yes. that team had a chance to win a World Series, and maybe because of that, ended up moving. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Yeah, that's that's a fair analysis. And a lot of people had said that the ninety four ninety five strike led to ultimately the demise of baseball in Montreal. I don't know that 
many people would dispute that at this point. Now, at the time, I was 32 or so, working at the Baltimore Sun as a columnist. I wasn't a beat writer at that point. I was a general sports columnist, so I covered the strike. It was a big story. And I'll give a couple of points that I remember, and I kind of researched a little bit too, thinking about this. First of all, that strike was 232 days long. It's two-thirds of a year, basically, longest in Major League history. The owners had proposed a salary cap, okay? That wasn't going anywhere. And what they wanted to do was have a salary cap and have more shared local television revenue. The two were keyed or tied together, and the union wasn't going for it. The owners also wanted to eliminate salary arbitration, go to free agency after four years instead of six, and maybe have the right to retain or keep four or five-year players by making or matching the best offer. So there were some different dynamics in play. The union wasn't going for that either. Salary arbitration is something that the union considers not as big an achievement as free agency, but something certainly that they fought for and that was really important to them and remains important to them to this day. And we've seen that in these negotiations. The union wants no part of a formula, war-based or any other kind of formula that will determine salaries for three to six players, three to six year players, or two to six year players, whatever the case might be. So how did this all evolve? Well, play stopped on August 11th, okay, right in the middle of this thing. And yes, as Tim said, the Expos had the best record in baseball. The Yankees had the best record in the American League. There was a federal mediator that got involved about three weeks after that. That went nowhere. And then the commissioner at the time, Bud Selig, canceled the rest of the season and the World Series on September 4th. 14th, I'm sorry. September 14th, World Series was banged. That was it. No World Series. Imagine that. It was crazy what was going on. This thing dragged into the offseason, of course. Congress, at the start of the year, introduced all these bills, basically calling for the end of this strike. And on January 26th, President Bill Clinton ordered the two sides to resolve their differences and reach an agreement by February 6th. Guess what? That didn't happen. The president had no authority here, and he couldn't control this. So then we had the situation arise where the owners wanted to use replacement players, essentially players off the street who would fill the roles of major leaguers. Well, that was not received well by a number of people, of course, the players foremost among them. Sparky Anderson took a leave of absence rather than manage under such conditions. The Blue Jays said they couldn't play because of labor laws in Canada forbidding replacement workers. And then there were the Orioles. And this was the team that I was following most closely at the time as a commons for the Baltimore Sun. The Orioles were owned then and now by Peter Angelos, who was very closely tied to labor and who had a player named Cal Ripken, who was closing in on Lou Gehrig's consecutive game streak record. Peter Angelos was not going to allow replacement workers to mess with that and to have games played that would effectively end Ripken's streak. So he was opposed. And there was a lot of this kind of tension, ancillary tension, to the primary tension, which, of course, was the strike. Well, finally, how did this end? It ended when Sonia Sotomayor, who was then a U.S. District Court judge and now is, of course, a Supreme Court justice, she issued a preliminary injunction against the owners, and they basically got back to work and agreed to finally get a new CBA. It all happened, and that is the story 
at least abridged to some degree, of the 1994-1995 player strike, the last work stoppage we had in this game. And yes, it was ugly. And yes, a lot of fans at least temporarily swore off baseball. It took Ripken's streak. Remember, that was in 95 when he broke the record. It took Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire in 98 really to complete the sport coming back. Not so much was known about what was going on with the performance enhancing drugs at the time. That was a story for later. But at the time, the streak in 95, the record that was broken, the beautiful night at Camden Yards, and then in 98, McGuire and Sosa, those two separate events were credited with bringing the sport back and... For a long time, the sport lived happily ever after. And now here we are. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Um, all right. So there are fans that are, I think, kind of smart enough for most fans, I think, are smart enough to to see through a lot of the talk that's going on. And that's the the next question's from Scott Nanny. He says He's not happy. He says, why does MLB insist on consistently alienating and insulting its fans? The commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred, put out a letter of apology to the fans because the labor dispute has resulted in a lockout, vowing that the owners are committed to reaching an agreement with the MLB Players Association. Instead, it's little more than an excuse to paint the players as the villains. Does he really think the fans are that stupid? If Manfred or anyone else involved truly cared about the game, they would spend their time trying to legitimately hammer out a deal so that we could avoid a lockout and issuing some nonsense statement that only adds to the problem rather than a solution. Manfred's claim that a lockout will force the two sides to get together and come to an agreement is also bogus. There's really no purpose in a lockout because we all know what happens next. There will be no negotiations until right before spring training is supposed to start. And then at the 11th hour, they will reach an agreement so that they don't lose any money. Why can't these two sides do something for the good of the game and for the fans instead of wasting everybody's time with nonsense? I think that sums up a lot of fans' views. <laughs> it does sum up a lot of fans' views and, frankly, a lot of reporters' views because we look at this, too, as I mentioned before, the Oslo scenario where this is baseball. Everybody's doing okay in baseball, all right? This is not some world peace situation, not some ancient grudge that's going on. It's a grudge, of course, that's gone on for decades, but this should be something that can be resolved by reasonable people in a reasonable time frame. Now, we understand, again, as I said earlier, that the time element here, there's no deadline, there's no urgency right now, 
But for a fan to be frustrated, I think that's entirely warranted. Because what we've seen, I would say from the owner's side in particular, are a series of proposals that really, frankly, are just not realistic. And I'll talk about two of them. The first one with the $180 million luxury tax threshold and the $100 million salary minimum, payroll minimum. No self-respecting union is going to go for a luxury tax threshold that is $30 million below where it is now. It's just not going to happen. The other one, free agency at 29 and a half, eliminating the six-year requirement. It would just be all players, free agents at 29 and a half. Really? Juan Soto comes into the league at 19. Satatis, similar age. We're going to wait for those guys. They're going to wait 10 years to become free agents. Now, come on. And I don't understand, honestly, and this goes for player club negotiations to contract negotiations on occasion. I don't understand why certain first proposals are made that are so ridiculous that the other side is not going to consider them. And the union has made a couple along those lines as well, though I think some of their proposals regarding free agency and arbitration are more realistic. Not necessarily realistic, but more realistic than some of the things we've heard, or at least that we know from the owners. Again, not that far apart, folks. This is not rocket science. Reasonable people should be able to get this done. And hopefully eventually they do. Enjoyed the question, though, Scott, and and appreciate the... uh the kind of anger that I was able to read into it. All right, next voicemail is a long one. This one's from Reggie. Good morning, Ken. This is Reggie from the Austin, Texas area. A couple of thoughts here. I agree with a lot of what you proposed in terms of ideas for settling the dispute between the players and the owners with regard to the lockout. I did want to note a couple of things and get your take. Uh, When I look at the historic... Uh, evolution of the competitive balance tax, the rate of growth has slowed substantially from the beginning of the 2003 CBA when it was introduced to the 07 CBA's beginning. The increase uh, was about uh, 20%. That has slowed to less than 10% at the rate of increase uh, over the last CBA. And if you were to go back to a 20% increase, that's basically... Um, going to take that figure well over $250 million, which is higher than what the players have proposed. I think they proposed $245 million uh, as the starting point for the new competitive balance tax. On the flip side, though, I am concerned at the rate things are escalating uh, at a rate higher than inflation that the sport may get so expensive that it prices out uh, a lot of average fans as ticket buyers, and I think that's contributing to the attendance uh, situation on top of COVID, because if you take the 200, uh, the 117 million in, 2000, in uh, 2002 and adjust for inflation, today's value is 179 million, which is basically where the owners want to reset the value to uh, for the new tax they proposed next year. So, what are your thoughts on how they untangle this situation? Because baseball uh, has 81 dates a year; they still have to sell. And uh, at the rate that costs are going up to deal with player salary, I do have some concern that that begins to pull the rubber band a bit too far, even though in general I'm more pro-player in my views on labor. Reggie, very thoughtful voicemail there, and I'll try to address a couple of things that you raised. One, and I should have mentioned this when 
I talked about the $180 million luxury tax threshold and $100 million payroll floor. The idea there is to compress the differences between the highest payrolls and the lowest. And that is something that I'm sure the owners want. Well, obviously they want it. They proposed it. And they want it because they claim that their concern is competitive balance. It's certainly a concern. Now, I wrote earlier that money is the concern for both sides. Don't be fooled by any other language. It's money. But the problem you speak of is certainly a problem that this sport has dealt with for a long time. How do you keep the lower revenue teams in line with the higher revenue teams competitively? And how do you prevent the higher revenue teams from getting away from them? That's kind of why the luxury tax was created. It was designed to slow the spending of the higher revenue teams and prevent them from hoarding the best players in free agency. That was the whole point of it. Now, if you take that threshold too high, as you said, Reggie, this is a good point. If you take it too high, let's say we take it to 250, and the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Astros and some of the other higher revenue clubs increase their spending, well, it's coming at the expense of the lower revenue clubs. So one of the key questions here, and I don't know the answer to this, is how do you raise the threshold? Because the threshold clearly needs to rise. It has not gone upward in accordance with revenues. And the union blundered last time by keeping the thresholds or agreeing to thresholds as low as they were. It was a critical blunder, and clearly it harmed them in the years ahead. So how do you keep the payroll disparity from growing? How do you balance it out for the lower revenue teams? I don't have an answer. What I wrote and what I kind of suggested was other mechanisms to help the lower revenue teams. One, of course, would be through the draft. That goes back to Jason's story and also just different ways that you can reward lower revenue teams in the draft. It's something that is clearly capable of happening. Both sides have had proposals on it. They seem to be somewhat in accord on the idea of using it to, one, prevent tanking, and two, perhaps help some of the lower revenue teams. You could also do some things with revenue sharing. You could expand the playoffs. That would likely help the lower revenue teams because it would create more opportunities for them to get in. There are different levers you can pull to balance out a higher threshold. And again, I'm not a labor lawyer. I'm not smart enough to know exactly how this would work, but there are ways to do it, I am quite certain. Final point. Reggie, you talk about this and a lot of fans mention this as well. Hey, if the salaries get too high, the ticket prices are going to get too high, fans are getting priced out. Well, that's happening as we stand here today. Fans, certain fans are getting priced out. But as I've said earlier, and I'll say this again, Ticket prices, concession prices, parking prices, all prices are a function of supply and demand. And if baseball can get those prices, no matter what the salaries are, they're going to charge those prices. And that's just the way the system works. I don't believe that the Texas Rangers will necessarily raise ticket prices because of what they've done here. They might use it as an excuse to do that. But the question is, well, if we raise ticket prices, can we get fans to pay them? Supply, demand. And if they can, they're going to raise ticket prices. And that is generally how the system works. All right, good stuff. Uh, let's go one more. This is a, kind of a long one from Calvin Fenner. He's got two points here, Ken. The first one, 
Uh, he's got proposals. It says, do you think the league or MLBPA would consider any of these proposals? For the playoffs, you can keep the same system, just seed it based on record once the playoffs begin. Lowest two records play the one-game wild card. Continue as normal from there with best record having fo- home field advantage. So basically taking away the division winners. Do you think they would go for that? No, because I think MLB wants expanded playoffs. Now, if the current system remained in place some way to change it with seeding so that we avoid what we had this year, the Dodgers and Giants in the division series with 107 and 106 wins, that would be advisable, right? We all know that that series should not have been the first series. It should have been the NLCS. And it was a great series over five games. It would have been even greater if it was over seven. So I can see that happening if we retain the current system, but I do believe that this next CBA is going to ex- include, I'm sorry, some form of expanded playoffs. And the union, which claims to be opposed to expanded playoffs, certainly opposed to the 14-team uh, proposal, has made a proposal of its own for 12 teams. So they're opposed, but they're not that opposed that they won't make their own proposal. So we're going to see expanded playoffs, I believe, as part of this. I am not a great fan of them. I do see them as something that... The owners certainly want, and the players are going to want to. They'll benefit from it financially. So any talk of the current system is probably wasted breath on our part, though it's a good question, Calvin, that you raise. All right, Calvin's other question is about the draft. For the draft, you keep the order based on record. However, could you add these caveats? No team will have the number one pick more than once in three years. If a team has the worst record a second year, the highest they will pick is fourth. If they have a bottom three record a third year, the highest they would pick is 15th. A team with a bottom five record and bottom five payroll in consecutive years cannot pick higher than fourth. A team with a bottom five record and bottom five payroll a third season will not pick higher than 15th. And then he goes on to this. World Series winners gain 25% pool increases for their competitive picks. World Series runner-up gets 15%. Division winners get 10% pool increases due to stack. So basically you're rewarding teams for their success and penalizing them not for one bad year, but for continual bad years. Yes, this is something that has been discussed, Calvin, and we've seen some proposals along these lines. Not necessarily exactly what you're suggesting, but different things that would be kind of working the way you're proposing there. So I do expect, or actually I should say I do hope. I don't know that I expect it. I hope that there is some anti-tanking measures that are part of the way the draft is operated from here on it out. And the way to do that would be in, along some of the things that you've suggested along those lines. You take a team that loses repeatedly and you penalize them in the draft. You perhaps take a team that wins and you reward them. Now, I don't know that we're ever going to see a World Series winner rewarded in the draft or even a division winner. Because remember, what the draft was supposed to be all about in the first place. Helping balance things out for the teams that are kind of down in their luck or not being run well. They get the chance to improve their clubs that way. What has happened in baseball is that teams have engaged in what the union leader Tony Clark called a race to the bottom to get the better picks, to get the higher pools, to get the higher international pools, and to kind of propel themselves that way. Hasn't always worked for those teams, but it's created a situation in which competitive integrity has been really jeopardized. So I can definitely see 
baseball and the union, MLB and the union, agreeing to address these things to some degree in the draft with some of the ideas that you mentioned there. Just don't know how it's going to work yet. And yes, as Jason wrote in his column about going in a reverse draft order, there are going to be unintended consequences no matter what happens. And obviously they have to look at that and try to minimize them as much as they can. All right, great questions again this week. If you want to get involved next time around, 646-543-7072 is our number. The email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Keep coming back to the Athletic Baseball Show all week. Up next this week, Wednesday, Evan Jarelic is back with his latest pod on the CBA negotiations. He's going to focus on service time manipulation, what could happen in the new CBA with that. Then on Thursday, it's Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby with the Baseball Barista. If you want to read all the great work of writers Ken and Jason and all the people we mentioned on this podcast, uh, you can save 33% off a subscription to The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. I mentioned this is our last mailbag episode of 2021. We'll be back next year with more. Ken, enjoy the holidays. You too, Tim. Yeah, we hope everyone else out there listening also has a great and safe holiday season. We'll talk to you in 2022.